1 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at chapter 1 here. I have numerous waters in case I run out of one and I can, there you go. First Corinthians chapter one. You can close it down if you want, it's fine. I'll probably play something at the end. So today's message is one that was laid on my heart throughout the week and my wife and I probably doesn't know I'm probably gonna bring this up. It's nothing it's fine, I do it to you all the time. It's yeah, I'm not putting you out on blast or anything right. like that. You, but you can use me. It's something that I think that we as, as Christians, we as the church, the body, it could be the, the local gathering or even just us as the, the universal church, can kind of fall into this trap of believing and thinking. And I've talked about it before in church um, as well, that maybe there's something about us that we need to pursue or be to help promote the kingdom of God. I want to explain that to you guys a little bit in regards to I'm going to actually go two weeks in a row here bringing up fitness. It's amazing because I, I didn't want to do that. Last week was the first time I did it. But when I was in the fitness industry, one of the things that I would hear from people, especially, believe it or not, I came to the Lord while I was in the fitness industry, which was an amazing thing because while I was in the fitness industry, I knew that being a Christian, I shouldn't be there because of all the vanity and the stuff that was going on in that industry. And I knew that I wanted to be with a woman, and the amazing woman, and I wanted to, to be with the four kids that she had as well. All these things I was, I was wrestling with, but it was, it was like the decision was made and, and my heart was already there in regards to what I needed to do. I knew that I couldn't have one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. I couldn't love one and then claim that I love the other. Now, I'll break this down more because I, I don't want to come off and saying that if you're in the fitness industry, you can't possibly be a Christian or, or any of that. But one of the things that I heard quite often while I was in the fitness industry, especially from people that were, you know, if they be bodybuilders or whatever, is they were pursuing a level of relevancy in the world. So when they got to this platform, they then would sit there and say, well, then I can really promote the kingdom of God. If I simply get to this level where then I am seen, then what a voice I can be for God. Have you guys ever heard this before? Like, it's, it's one of those things where I don't want to come off and say that, that you can't have status as a Christian, that you can't have money, that you can't have things, that you can't have accomplishments. But one of the things that, that I think that we can so easily fall into, and it's something that's very prevalent, I think, even in the church today, is we have to pursue this sense of relevancy first so then we can reach people. Jelaine and I, we were talking about it this week, about, you know, you know we can do it in, in church services, we can do it with the local body, we can do it even in our witnessing to people that maybe there's a, a need for me to look like the world first to get people comfortable to be able to reach them with the gospel. And this isn't, this isn't true. This isn't to be. Like, this is a, a classic, what you would refer to as like bait and switch, right? If I trick the world in thinking that I'm kind of like them, then I work my way up the ladder of relevancy and I work up the ladder of this worldly means and gains and what the world sees as awesome, what the world sees as popular. If I get to that place and that status, then when I'm there, 
I will scream Jesus from the proverbial worldly hilltop, right? So we pursue things. We, pursue, we can pursue money. We can pursue possessions and all that stuff first before we pursue the kingdom of God. And once again, I want to make sure that I stress this. I am not saying that you can't have money, that you can't have possessions, you can't have a worldly status and still promote the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is we have to make sure that we check our hearts in regards to the jump off point of what we're doing. Are we pursuing and seeking the kingdom first in which then these things are in a sense given to us? Because here's the fact of the matter in the biblical truth. God uses the weak things of the world. Amen? Amen. God uses the shameful things, the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And we're going to go into scripture and talk about this because, once again, something that that we could easily fall into, and I I like to bring up kind of the local gathering, is the sense of we got to be relevant because we really want to hit and reach the world around us. So what do we do as a church? What do we start to begin to look like? we start to begin to look like the world. We're, we're losing a sense of holiness, that set-apartness that we're called to be, the called-out ones, the ecclesia, the church, and we look more so of trying to be like the world around us. I told my wife, I heard a pastor once say this, the world and the devil gets us six days out of the week. There's one day out of the week that we can come together as a body and be holy together. Give God worship. Look set-apart, be set-apart, be the called-out ones encourage one another give god our worship as we're doing today and one of the beautiful things about this ministry that i love is is once again i I like to pick on us a little bit there's nothing pleasing to the eye really when you come in here i mean some people come in they're like oh it's so calm and all that but let's be real let's be honest it's kind of a funky red carpet we we were happy because we got a new coffee machine i think this one serves you says 14 cups as opposed to 12. We have a new water thing, so no longer do you need to drink brown water out of the faucet. Unless that's your thing and you want to, you'd be more than welcome to drink the brown water in the back. But these are the things where, once again, we want you guys to come here because you want Jesus Christ. You don't want Pastor Josh. You don't want amazing music to go up there that fits your ear and your tune. You want to come in here to give God your worship, period. And you want to do it with like-minded brothers and sisters. Why? Because you're going to leave here and go out into the world for the rest of the week where you're probably going to get your butt kicked in essence. You're going to have people look at you and think that you're a weirdo for the things that you believe. They're going to think you're foolish. They're going to think you're weak because you're a Christian. But praise God because he gives us a means of grace to come together like this. Look around. Guys, this is as diverse as you can get. Different age groups, different backgrounds, all of that. But guess what? We are united together under Jesus Christ. There's no wall anymore dividing anyone in here. We are a family of brothers and sisters of Christians, period. We all come together with that truth. And once again, when it comes to this aspect of truth, we have to make sure and understand that we don't need to dress truth up to make it seem more appealing to the world around us. Because in essence, when you try to add more to truth, guess what you really do in the end? You actually take away a little bit from it. You try to make it more easier to chew for the world to hear. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We hold firm and stand firm in God's truth. Truth doesn't get old. Truth never changes. Am I right? It doesn't change. Truth yesterday is the same truth today. It's the same truth tomorrow. And this is the beauty of God's word. 
So I want you guys to look at 1 Corinthians here and give you guys a little bit of background and context as we unpack this and go into this. Because once again, I'm not, I don't want to ever sound like I'm bashing churches and all that. I asked my wife yesterday because she's been in church far longer than I. I go, what were some things that maybe local bodies would do to try to seem relevant to the world? Like back in the day. And I remember like it would be like a big deal. I would hear some churches say like if they changed the lettering or something on their church and made it more modern, like that was kind of a big deal and people would even complain about it. Or maybe they changed their sign out front from being the one where you put the letters in individually to something maybe that was automatic with lights. Like you're trying to do something to be like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about to where I want it to be when a person comes in that there's this sense of, man, I want them to sit down and I want to make sure that they don't feel threatened by what they're coming into. And there's a truth to that to an extent. But here's the fact of the matter. And this ministry is an example of it. Christ crucified is the power of God. His word is the sword of the Spirit. Pastor Josh doesn't need to add anything to it to make it more appealing. I don't need to make it, I don't need to add anything to it to make it more powerful. That is the truth of the matter. My job is pretty much laid out for me. Go up as a pastor, what do you do? You preach and teach the word. What do you do as a congregation? You test the things that I say. Not testing me to prove that I'm wrong, but once, once again, testing to affirm the things that I teach to be truth. So when I give you a passage to read, I want to give you context. Why do I give you context? Because I don't want you to think that I'm just pulling those passages out of thin air to fit the topic that I'm preaching on. I want you to write the passages down, go home, talk to your spouse and your kids about the passages that we went through and read, and unpack it a little bit. And guess what that leads to? It can lead to conversation between you and I pastor to congregant, or even more so, Christian to Christian. That's how we grow as people. That's how we grow as Christians in maturity and in the faith. Amen? So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start off here at verse 18. I'll go down through and unpacking this, but guys, everyone in here, we know what it's like to be weak. And if we have prayers for ourselves, I think an amazing pray, a prayer for us when we're praying to the Lord is, God, make us weak. Make us weak because when we're weak, guess what that does to God in our life? Makes him strong. We're decreasing ourselves to increase him. We understand and know our position in front of this holy God, which then gives us this newfound reverence of who he is and what he's done for us as well. But if we're all about being strong, if we think that we only can accomplish this through worldly means, worldly accomplishments, that we have to, in a sense, bait and switch the world to get to a level of where we need to be to promote him, here's the beauty of the Bible, guys. God doesn't need any of us. Amen or ouch? Amen. Doesn't need any of us. But here's the reverence of his love. He wants us. He wants us to love him. He wants to love us. This is the beauty of his grace. So that song says, your grace is so free. Think about that. God does not need us. He just simply wants us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy 
the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And I love to say this to people. Some people are all about knowledge. Their heads get too big to where they can't walk through the door of truth. Okay, That's not in the Bible here, by the way. So if you're looking for that passage, I just added that in there. Verse 20 says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Now, mind you guys, Paul is speaking here to a group of Christians that have had a heavy influence from a Greek surrounding. They're about wisdom. But there's also some Jews in here that are still about these signs and stuff like that. But a lot of people here are wrestling with some philosophical things, super spiritual things, wise words. So Paul's kind of just putting them out there on blast. Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Guess what? Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. There's a simplicity in that message, in that phrase that he's saying. The Jews were looking for signs. They wanted to see Jesus as the way that they portrayed him to be when they read through the Old Testament, that he would be this mighty king with a sword on fire riding into Jerusalem on a stallion. And he was not. He was a humble servant king riding in on what? A donkey. Can't get any more humble than that, right? The Greeks, though, they wanted wisdom. They wanted to debate about stuff. They wanted to hear more of the philosophical side or even maybe a spiritual side to this. You know, you say these things. You speak about a Jesus that was completely man and completely God, and you speak about his death, but you also speak about him having a physical resurrection. That doesn't compute to my wisdom. That doesn't compute to my ways of thinking. Many of us today sit here in the church and we hear the same arguments from people. Am I right? You're telling me that there was a guy that lived thousands of years ago that was a human, but he was also God, and he died, but he rose from the dead? And our ways of understanding, that's not always the easiest thing to comprehend when we're in the flesh of things, right? So this is what Paul is addressing. This is what he's looking at. So when we preach Christ crucified, this is a stumbling block to those two audiences, those who are looking for a sign and those who are looking for wisdom, Okay, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, here we go. Listen to this, church. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. This is a biggie. Because once again, we are the ones that struggle with this aspect of grace. We do. We struggle with this sense that there is a God in heaven that loves us and that is love to the point where there's nothing that we bring to the table in the sense of our righteousness. I've said this to you guys before. When we preach the gospel, we can easily start and try to unpack something in saying that there's something good about us, something beautiful about us inside that God saw in which he sent his only son to die for us. And I say, no. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Why did God save us? Why did God send his only son to die for us? Because God is what? He is love. Period. Paul's going to go in here and even explain to us why this is. Why is it that there's nothing that we could do to bring to the table 
to earn this kind of love. We had the law. We had all that for thousands of years. The law was never meant to save. It was only meant to show us how sinful we are. But guess what? How holy God is. Paul's going to go on to sit here and say, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Church, think of what you were when you were called. Think about the depravity that you lived in. Think about the stories going through your brain right now, the lives that you used to live. Think about the sin you used to bask in and justify all the day long. You're blind to it. You're a slave to it. Even some of you today thinking and sitting about where you're at right now in life. I'm too bad for this God to love me. That's a devil's lie. Just as it's a lie to sit there and say that you're too good to need him. Romans 3.23, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. It's the most beautiful news that anyone can hear. Amen? Amen? So he goes on to say, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. I say amen and ouch to that. Not many of you were influential. So listen to these words because these are worldly words. These are worldly standards that we can so easily fall into and think that this is what I need to be to receive salvation. This is what I need to be for this big, big God up in heaven to see me down on this sinful world to give me his love. If you think of God that way, you are making this holy God very small. Because this is not the way the true living God is. This is not the way that he is. He sees you in your sin. He sees you in your unrighteousness. And he reveals himself to you. And guess what? He calls you child. This is a truth. Doesn't matter your feelings. This is the truth of it all. He is love. And guess what? As I prayed before the service, every day is a day of salvation. So someone in this room probably needs to hear this truth. Because it's through the reception of that grace and the belief of that grace that guess what? You become a brand new creation. Your eyes are opened to your sin. You then see the reverence and the holiness of this God and you walk in a brand new life. He goes on here to say, You were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, but many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the what, church? The weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? He goes on to say, so that no one may boast before him. Think about that. I want you guys to, to put this together. How are you doing, Dex? I want you guys to think about this. How many of you in this room have felt despised before? How many of you in this room have felt shameful? How many of you in this room have felt foolish? How many of you in this room have felt weak? What a conduit and what an avenue for this holy God to use you. Why would he use me? I've experienced and felt all these things. Lord knows I'm sitting in the pew right now and I'm, I'm sitting in it right now, wallowing in these identities. Why would he use me? So you can't boast about anything because salvation belongs completely to Jesus Christ. Completely. I've said this to you guys before and I'll say it again. When the question is asked, I've heard a pastor say this, how do you know that you're saved? 
If the statement begins with because I, guess what? You've answered wrong. If the statement begins with because he, you've answered right. Amen? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know you're going to heaven? Because he did this for me. Not because I cleaned myself up enough. Not because I said so many prayers. Not because I knew my Bible or because I grew up in a home where people went to church. I know that I'm saved because of him. Because of his love for me. Period. And he leaves it that way and makes it that way so that we don't boast about this. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that, in, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I'm going to have you guys now turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. And this is just to piggyback a little bit more off of what I said earlier about our sense of maybe wanting to pursue this relevancy to the world, maybe compromising a little bit about who we are as Christians to maybe work our way through the ladder of the world, to put ourselves on this pedestal in the world, then to speak and talk about Jesus Christ. I mean, let's be honest with you, and I say that I do this too, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but how many of you get excited when you see a person of prominence say that they're a Christian? It's exciting, right? I mean, let's be honest. When you see a person that is maybe a celebrity or a political figure, and they say that they're a Christian, they say God, they say Jesus Christ, we get excited, right? We do. I know I even get excited when I'm driving down the road and I see a car with a Jesus fish on the back. But think about it. Like our standards maybe go down a little bit because we visually see these things. So we get excited and we get worked up. We're like, oh, there's a, another brother or sister in the faith, right? But then I always sit there and think about, look at the things as a church today that we divide ourselves over, these non-essentials, right? These things that we just bicker over. And sit there and say, I can't have fellowship with these people because they believe this. I can't have fellowship with these people because their church looks like that. Do it all the day, all the days long. But then there's things that we overlook that I see as, as essential when it comes to a church, when it comes to doctrine and theology, that we can so easily just push to the side and come together and not even think twice about. But here we see a situation with Paul. And if you guys remember through Paul's ministry, especially when you're looking here through Acts, that numerous things would take place when Paul would preach and when he would speak to the crowds. There would either be riots or the sense of revivals that would take place, okay? He would either stir crowds up to where they wanted to kill him, or there'd be a lot of people that would come to the Lord through his preaching and teaching, okay? Sometimes in the same day. But Paul was an individual that, once again, as I speak about and I talk to you guys about, we always sit there and say, well, Paul was this amazing man of God. And I told you guys, as we went through the Second Corinthians series, the thing that made Paul who Paul was was his recognition of his weakness, the recognition of his depravity. What do I mean that by that? It was his recognition of his need for God. It wasn't a haughtiness in his spirit. It was a poverty of spirit. It was a recognition of who he was when he was called. We all know the backstory of Paul, right? Murderer, Saul, as some people refer, right? We know the backstory. But God used Paul in a mighty way. 
Paul didn't use Paul in a mighty way. It was Paul's understanding of his need for Christ. We've given displays and images up here when we had Brent is, were you Jesus? Jesus. Look at his face. Brandon was Hitler and Jelaine was Paul. If you missed that service, you missed a doozy. But is this understanding of this need that keeps this chasm between us and God big? Because when that chasm stays big, guess what? The recognition of his grace over our lives remains big. And the recognition of the grace over our lives remain big. Guess what? We operate and function in that grace. That grace is not just a characteristic of God. It is a power of God that we then live outwardly in our faith. We love others. Why? Because we understand and know that we were loved first, even while we were still sinners. We know that there's nothing that we could do to earn God's love. So we don't boast about it. We just boast simply in Jesus Christ. So when Paul's preaching and teaching, though, and we find this here in Acts 17, I'm going to kind of skim through this a little bit, but in the opening part of 17, he's actually preaching in Thessalonica, where he's preaching in the synagogues to the Jews. Paul was an educated guy, probably the most educated Jew of his time. He knew the scriptures inside and out. He could sit down and he could reason with the best of them. Okay? He would speak about Christ crucified. He would take the Old Testament and speak about why, how you see Jesus in the Old Testament, how you see the Messiah in the Old Testament. And in speaking to the Jews, guess what? Some of them would come to know Christ through his speaking and his teaching. It's an amazing thing, and you guys can read through that. We're going to go through a different section here. But guess what it also did? It caused a stir amongst people. This is blasphemy, what this guy is preaching and teaching. To the point where Paul would get arrested, he would be persecuted, he would be beaten. He would be imprisoned. But he did this unto the Lord. He did this and lived this way because he wanted to preach and teach the gospel. In a way that many of us, probably none of us in this room, could truly understand. And maybe we never will. Maybe there's a day coming where we'll finally understand that. I don't know. I know many of us in here understand that persecution of speaking and preaching Christ. But when you go on through here, you then find him in, in verse 10 in this place called Berea. I love Berea because the Bereans were educated as well. And they would go to the scriptures, they would listen to Paul, and they would go to the scriptures to validate, they would test him to see what he was saying. They would actually use the scriptures that they had. Paul would sit there and say, well, this says this, this is how you see Jesus here. Old Testament says that, and this is Jesus here. These guys are just going through, testing, testing. This guy's speaking truth. Yeah, it's right there. Look, he says this. Yep, he said, okay, I see that. And guess what? They would come to know the Lord. But then there's this interesting situation where you see Paul in Athens. Okay? He's in Athens. Here, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Okay? We can say amen to this in our day, right? We can look around and we can see idols everywhere. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, okay, began to debate with them. This was a thing that was pretty popular in Athens. There was these new, you know, ideas and these new thoughts that were going on, popular things, popular truths that were going on that people would debate about in the marketplace, Probably like a biblical time Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I don't know. But people would sit there and do that. And they would have these discussions. And Paul would put himself right there in the midst of it. He would listen to them. He would kind of hear how their logic was and their thinking. 
Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. Why would they say that? Because they did not understand or comprehend, once again, a man named Jesus, who is completely God and completely human, a physical death and a physical resurrection. They were taking gods that they've had in their time, and they were trying to morph it into what Paul was preaching and teaching about. So what, to them, that was just a bunch of babbling. There's this curiosity there about what is this guy talking about? Who is he talking about? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, then they, looked, or then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Arab, oh my gosh, I just said this word before. Areopagus, sorry. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, the Areopagus was a group of people kind of like the Sanhedrin. They were Greeks. And they would sit there and they would listen to all the babble and the new trends and the discussions that were going on in their time. Paul had preached and taught and spoke about the resurrection, about the gospel, to the point where it was causing a stir in Athens. And the Areopagus wanted to hear more about what was going on. But they had this power to persecute and condemn and punish people that were speaking in ways that were not good. But they also just had a power to just call people in to just listen to see what it was that they were preaching and teaching about. But in the midst of it all, when Paul was speaking about the gospel and he was speaking about these things going on, he never wavered in what it was that he was talking about. He spoke about Christ crucified. He spoke about the physical Jesus. He spoke about the physical death and the physical resurrection. He literally was working his way through this town speaking truth to the point now where he's literally on this grand stage to where he gets to preach and speak to a Gentile world. And this is a, a defense that I like to use with people that sit there and say that they want to go and they want to get big for the world and all of that to where then they can openly speak about Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. I say, look at Paul in Acts chapter 17, and you'll see a man that didn't do that. You see a man that, hold firm, that held firm to Christ crucified, hold firm to truth, even to the point where he was being persecuted, even to the point where he faced being arrested, beat, imprisoned. And then when he was even brought on the grand stage of things in front of the Areopagus, he never wavered. He didn't change what it was that he said. I'm going to go on here to, to read. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. How many of you know people like that? Oh, I love the faces when I say that. We love, guys, let's be honest. Maybe us in here. When I say how many of you know people like that, it's probably you. I know I can get caught up in it, Right? Lord knows we have all this stuff around us. We can just get caught up in the trends of things and just start talking about it. Guess what? It wasn't different back in the Lord's day either. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And I'm going to come back to that when we close the service. So you are ignorant of this very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Think about the boldness here. Think about it. 
So I'm going to sit here and say that I'm just going to do this bait and switch with the world. I'm going to get big in the world's eyes. I'm going to compromise a little bit. I want to be relevant first and foremost. And then when I get on top and all that stuff, guess what? I'm going to speak Christ crucified. I'm going to speak about Jesus Christ. Paul right here, what we're seeing and what, what, he, what he's just claiming is he looks at the world, the Oropagus, these Greek leaders who have the authority to throw them in prison, to persecute them, punish him, whatever. And he lays out for him. He stands up in the meeting. People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. You like your gods. You like your idols. We see this in today's world, especially in this nation. You like all of this stuff. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, which is showing us that Paul, he did learn about their ways. He did want to understand, and I've talked that to you guys as a church, that I think it's important that we know the ways of, of other people's beliefs. It's valuable for us in our ministry to people. But Paul never wavers in what it is that he's doing. He didn't waver to get to this point, and he's not wavering right now. He didn't have to get big first to speak about Jesus. He spoke about Jesus the whole time, and then he gets put on a platform to do what? Speak about Jesus. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. They had tons of gods, guys. But they're writing on this to an unknown God. To an unknown God. Trying to cover all their bases. He goes as far as saying, so you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He's going to speak about creation. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. These gods that you worship, they don't live in temples. You can't build something up and just claim this to be a God. The true living God, the one true living God, the creator of all, he doesn't live there. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Remember what I said to you earlier. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. If he did, guess what? He wouldn't be God. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, and they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul's even using a sense of their culture to defend what it is that he's saying. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? Repent. When was the last time you heard a popular person who said that they were a Christian look at a camera and say, y'all need to repent? If they did, guess what? Chances are the camera probably got cut off pretty quick. He didn't waver to get where he was at. He didn't waver when he got where he was at. And he drove the message home. You guys are religious. You like your gods. You like your idols. You even have this marking here to an unknown God that you guys don't even know anything about. Well, I'm going to tell you about this God. 
this one true living God, the God of creation. And he lays this amazing evangelistic sermon on these Gentiles because he's not adding anything to the message. He's not concerned about relevancy. He's not concerned about status. He trusts and knows in the power of the sword of the Spirit of God's Word and the power of God's Holy Spirit to take that Word and pierce the hearts and the minds of the people listening to it. Amen? Amen. He goes on to sit here and say, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, and now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof to this, to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who is this man, church? Jesus Christ. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them did what? They sneered. But others said, what? We want to hear again about this subject. We want to hear more about this God. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysus, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Guys, I want to close with this. Paul took this opportunity when he saw this marking and this sign that said, to an unknown God. He took this opportunity to take that, to speak to the Oropagus and the Gentiles and even some of the Jews that were there. To say this unknown God maybe that you don't know about, guess what? He wants to be known. This unknown God that you just kind of put on this inscription, let me tell you about this unknown God that you obviously don't know anything about. Because when you truly know about this God, all these other gods that you've used with silver and bronze and gold, you're going to get rid of them in a heartbeat. Because this is the God of creation. This is the God of all, the King of kings. And it's through this God that I find salvation. It's through this God that I finally find peace. It's through this God that I want to give my worship to. And I know that there may be people even in this room today that don't know this God, but I want to let you guys know if that's you, that this unknown God wants to be known by you. He wants you to know Him. He doesn't need you, but here's the beauty of it. He wants you. He wants your worship. He desires your worship. And there's nothing that you bring to the table. That's the beauty of it. It's probably our biggest struggle in understanding the gospel. There's nothing that you bring to the table. And I'm not saying this once again, that when you become a Christian, that God isn't going to, that you're not going to go through and get status, that you're not going to go get things and all that stuff. But what I am saying to you, that in the midst of you seeking the kingdom first, if you acquire these things, Use them as a means of worship to this one true and living God. Submit yourselves unto Him. Come to know His peace and come to know His love and His mercy. Don't compromise. Especially in a world today that is pushing even the church right now to compromise. As we talked about, I believe it was last week, it's those who endure until the end will what? Be saved. Church, endure the world. Endure it. Endure it for the sake and the glory of God. Amen? I'm going to play.